Hi, I'm Alex Garcia, and thanks for joining us here at NTWC Live. It is a team effort between Bill Reed, Tim Smith, and I. We'd like to say thank you to a few groups that helped make this possible. It's USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, the Weather Company, and the Weather Boy. And now, here's Tim Smith. Thank you, Alex, and good morning, everybody. Welcome to NTWC Live for Thursday, June the 16th. Good to have everybody along in this special edition of NTWC Live today. Uh, just good to have everybody back. It's good to be doing this again, you know, after the, the live conference in person in April back on South Padre Island. We're looking forward to being there again next April uh, with all the familiar faces and a bunch of new ones as well. Our programs today are brought to you by USAA, by the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, by Walmart, I visit Brownsville, my Black Magic Design, the Port of Brownsville, and the Weather Company, all folks that make this event a possibility. Today, we get to hear an update from Dr. Phil Klosbach. Um, been a friend of this program for a very long time. Bill will introduce him in just a second. But before we get to that, let's turn it over to Bill Reed for an update on what's happening in the tropics and to intro our special guest. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Tim, and everybody on online here today. And uh, uh, it is uh, always a fun talk when we have uh, Dr. Phil on here to uh, talk about the machinations of the season coming up. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it back to Alex for a quick uh, uh, word from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back. We made USAA insurance for members like Kate, a former army medic made of the flexibility to handle whatever Monday has in store and tackle four things at once. So when her car got hit, she didn't worry. She simply filed a claim on her USAA app and said, I've got this. USAA Insurance has made the way Kate needs it. Easy. She can even pick her payment plan, so it's easy on her budget and her life. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Beach lovers know it. Fishermen and water lovers know it. Little kids and big kids know it. Sandcastle builders, free spirits, and adventure seekers know it. Everyone who's ever been here knows it. South Padre Island is so fun, so perfect, and most of all, so Padre. Plan your escape at SoPadre.com. Okay, folks, we're uh, back at it, and uh, I, I'll introduce our guest, but he probably doesn't need much introduction. He's been on our show many times over the years. Uh, he's our go-to guy when you want to find out what's going on in the long term. Uh, uh, Dr. Phil Klosbach is a uh, professor with uh, uh, Colorado State University, and he actually lives in Colorado this year after a few years of uh, living out on the West Coast. Uh, so what, what you got in store for us this year, the rest of this season, Phil? Well, thanks so much, Bill and Tim and Alex, and uh, it's great to uh, have all see all of you virtually, and um, it was so it was so awesome to be able to uh, have the National Tropical Weather Conference back in person in April. Um, but uh, yeah, we are now into the 2022 Atlantic hurricane season. Uh, we already had uh, Alex's namesake, Alex. Um, and I was actually down for the, uh, there was a meeting on hurricanes and climate change last week in Key Largo. And uh, we, were, we got down on Sunday. So it was just after the storm had passed through um, the, the pre-Alex uh, system. And there was a whole lot of water um, still in Key Largo. It took a couple of days for most of that to drain. But um, yeah, it's great to be here, and I'm going to talk with you about the latest outlook for the 2022 Atlantic hurricane season. So just going to start with the numbers. This is the forecast we put out two weeks ago. Um, 
I'd say at this point, we don't expect the numbers to change dramatically with our next update, which will be in early July. And I'll talk a little more about why that's the case um, a little later. But we are forecasting, you know, quite a healthy season. Total of 20 named storms. So that would include Alex and so 19 additional storms. 10 hurricanes and five major category three, four, five hurricanes. Um, that compares with an average season, which has about 14 storms of those 14, seven becoming hurricanes, and of those seven, three becoming major hurricanes. An additional metric that we like to forecast is accumulated cyclone energy. That's an integrated metric accounting for storm frequency, intensity, and duration. So in the case of um, um, last year, for example, two, we had two long-lived major hurricanes, Larry and especially Sam, um, and those generate tremendous amounts of ACE because they were long-lived major hurricanes. So you'll see ACE or accumulated cyclone energy discussed some throughout the rest of the talk. But whenever I do um, discussions of seasonal hurricane prediction, I always like to start by acknowledging the great contributions made by Dr. Bill Gray, who was the founder of the seasonal Atlantic hurricane forecast. Uh, he founded those all the way back in 1984. So this is the 39th year of CSU doing seasonal hurricane predictions. Um, in addition to founding the seasonal forecast, he made fundamental contributions to tropical cyclone structure, genesis, intensity change, just um, <clears throat> a tremendous scientist, also a tremendous mentor, um, and certainly I was very fortunate to get the chance to work with him uh, for about 15 years. I mean, certainly that was a, a great honor, great pleasure, and I learned a tremendous amount from working with him. And so I, you'll probably hear the name uh, Dr. Gray mentioned throughout the rest of this talk, and that's because um, his imprints are certainly on, all, on everything that I do uh, when it comes to seasonal hurricane prediction. But when it comes to Dr. Gray, one of his favorite things that he that he loved a lot was philosophy. He wrote a lot of books on philosophy, and one of his favorite philosophers was the great Yankee catcher Yogi Berra, who once stated that it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, and I think certainly that's the case whether you're trying to forecast, you know, what's going to happen with inflation, what's going to happen with the stock market, what's going to happen with interest rates, or what's going to happen with climate and weather. Forecasting the future is extremely difficult. But another statement by Yogi, I think, is really prescient when it comes to hurricanes and seasonal hurricane prediction, and that is that you can see a lot by looking. Basically, hurricane seasons are not random events. Um, basically, the large-scale atmosphere and ocean, what the conditions are there, basically loads the dice one way or the other to give you more or less likely to have an above or below average hurricane season. So for example, Dr. Gray, when he started working on these forecasts, one of the reasons he started working on them was because basically he was an encyclopedia of knowledge. He was effectively Wikipedia before we had Wikipedia. Um, and so he knew which years in the past were active hurricane seasons, and he knew which years in the past were El Nino years. And then he noted, hey, when we have El Nino, we tend to get fewer hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean. And so he found he discovered a lot of these kinds of statistical relationships. And then the challenge is trying to understand physically why would something, why would El Nino, which is warmer than normal water in the central and eastern tropical Pacific Ocean, why would El Nino impact hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean thousands of miles away? And he found it was primarily through alterations in winds high up in the atmosphere, say 20 to 30,000 feet. When you have an El Nino, it tends to increase the strength of those winds out of the west. Um, and what that tends to do is increase levels of vertical wind shear. So the change in wind direction and speed with height in the atmosphere. So in the Atlantic Ocean at low levels near the ocean surface, the winds blow out of the east, those are the trade winds. At upper levels, they tend to blow out of the west. 
And when you have an El Nino, they blow much stronger out of the West. So you have a vertical, a, a, a strong shear that develops. Now, hurricanes like to be upright. So when you get a lot of shear, it tends to tilt the hurricane circulation, disrupts it, promotes an, um, entrainment of dry air into the circulation. And consequently, you end up with weaker hurricanes or no hurricanes at all. Um, and so consequently, El Nino tends to really knock down your hurricanes and especially your major category three, four, five hurricanes. Whereas in La Nina, which is what we think is most likely for it to be, occur this year, you tend to have less shear, more active Atlantic hurricane seasons. And what I'm trying to convince you of next is that those precursor signals do go back several months. And so we have globally gridded data that goes back all the way back to the 19th century, but it's reasonably reliable since 1950 and really good since about 1980. We also have hurricane data, which goes back all the way to 1851, but obviously we observe hurricanes a little differently than we did in 1851. So, um, but the data for hurricane seasons is probably decent since about 1950. So here what I'm showing you is January through March, sea surface temperatures, or SSTs, in the 10 most active seasons, difference from the 10 least active seasons. And what we can see is even in January through March, there are clues. If you look at the Atlantic, the Atlantic is warmer than normal. Warmer than normal water provides more fuel for hurricanes. And the warmer than normal water that we see in January through March tends to persist into the peak of the Atlantic hurricane season. If we look at the tropical Pacific, we don't see too much of a coherent pattern yet. And that's because if you're gonna get transitions between El Nino and La Nina or vice versa, it tends to happen during the boreal spring. So during April, May, June timeframe. Now, if we move from January through March and shift to April and May, we see a La Nina pattern starting to show up. We see cooler than normal water in the Eastern and Central Tropical Pacific, but we also see warmth in the Atlantic, but I wanna draw your attention to the warm water off the coast of the Iberian Peninsula, off of Northwest um, Africa, even extending up towards France and England. When you get warm waters there during April and May and into June and July, that's critical because when you get warm waters there, that tends to force lower atmospheric pressures in the subtropics and you get a weaker overall subtropical high pressure system. When you have that weaker subtropical high pressure system, though that means the winds around that high pressure system tend to be weaker as well. And consequently, then we end up with weaker trade winds, weaker low level winds out of the east in the tropical Atlantic. Weaker winds mean less churning up of the ocean surface, less mixing, less evaporation, and consequently then the tropical Atlantic begins to warm for the peak of the Atlantic hurricane season. And if we step from April to May to June and July, we see um, continuation of that warm water and you see a pretty strong signal off the Iberian Peninsula. And that's one of the reasons why our forecast this year is quite high is because we do see a lot of warmth um, off of the west coast of Africa all the way up to France and England. And I'll show that um, here in just a minute. We also see a much more robust La Nina event. And certainly for August through October, we see a very healthy La Nina and also warmer than normal waters in the tropical Atlantic extending into the Caribbean, kind of the classic signal that we expect for an active season since a warmer Atlantic provides more fuel for the hurricanes. It also tends to be associated with lower pressures and a more unstable atmosphere to help um, enhance the thunderstorms and the, which are the building blocks of the Atlantic hurricanes. Um, so now to dive into 2022 in detail, um, here again is the forecast that we put out in early June. Um, again, forecasting an above normal Atlantic hurricane season. An average season, for example, has about seven hurricanes. We're forecasting 10. And the reason why we forecast major hurricanes separately is even though they only make up about a quarter of the storms that form in an average year, these storms historically do about 80 to 85% of the damage caused by hurricanes. 
Now, if we zoom in and look at the current sea surface temperature anomalies or differences from the long-term average, um, if we look in the tropical eastern and central Pacific, we see a lot of blue colors indicative of La Nina conditions. We currently have a weak La Nina event in place in the tropical Pacific Ocean. Now, in the Atlantic, we see this red rectangle, which highlights what's known as the main development region. And the reason it's called that is because that's where most of the hurricanes, and especially the major hurricanes in the Atlantic, tend to form and intensify. If we look at the box, you can see a lot of yellows and oranges in the east, a little cooler than normal, pretty much near average in the Caribbean. But if we look more towards the west coast of Africa, extending up of France, Iberian Peninsula, up into England, you do see a lot of warmth in that region, which is one of the reasons, again, why we're forecasting an above normal Atlantic hurricane season. But to start, let's look at what's going on in the tropical eastern and central Pacific. That blue rectangle is highlights what's known as the Nino 3.4 region. And that um, very um, excitingly named region is the region that NOAA uses to monitor whether we have El Nino or La Nina conditions. So water temperatures in that box are half a degree Celsius or more colder than normal. NOAA will declare a La Nina event, provided those persist for at least a few weeks. Alternatively, when those water temperatures are half a degree Celsius or more warmer than normal, NOAA will declare an El Nino event. So right now we have what's known as a weak La Nina event. So water temperatures are a little bit cooler than normal. One thing I wanna draw your attention to again is that you know these water temperatures in this box, half a degree Celsius or one degree Fahrenheit, warmer or colder than normal is enough to trigger either an El Nino or a La Nina. So the strength of the, so, Small temperature changes in the tropics have big differences in then how the atmosphere responds. So that's really why um, this is such a critical area. So these very small temperature changes in this box can have big changes in how the atmosphere then responds. Um, and so the official forecast from the US government just came out. It's saying a little more than 50% chance of La Nina uh, for the peak of the hurricane season, and about a 40, a little over 40% chance of neutral conditions. Now, neutral means neither El Nino nor La Nina. And if we did go to neutral conditions, we would likely be on the cool side of neutral, so a little bit cooler than normal, but not quite to the half a degree Celsius threshold. I mean, that would still likely lead to an above normal Atlantic hurricane season. Uh, but if we look, you see that red the, the red column is very, very small in August through October. It's only about 3% chance of El Nino. Um, and the reason why we focus on August through October is because that's the peak three months of the hurricane season. Over 90% of your major hurricane activity occurs during those three months. Um, so here's the forecast from a whole pile of different models. If you like acronyms, this slide is for you. Um, this, this plot will actually be updated here in just a few hours. I looked right before this presentation and they still had the main forecast. But in the next couple hours, this slide will like, or these uh, forecasts from models will likely be updated. Um, and so if you can look for August through October, we see that none of the models are forecasting El Nino. So again, the odds of El Nino seem very, very low. Um, only one model is forecasting above zero sea surface temperatures for August through October. So all models except one are calling for either cool neutral or La Nina conditions for the peak of the season. Um, and I tend to be even a little more aggressive that we're going to see La Nina remain. One of the reasons being that um, the forecast of the low level winds across the tropical Pacific is generally for enhanced trade winds. And so um, they kind of walk you through this plot. This is a forecast from the European Center, um, our ECMWF model for the next 15 days. 
And so what the wind, um, and so this is average from five degrees south to five degrees north, so right near the equator. And this spans from zero degrees, um, so basically spanning from Africa um, with the Central Pacific in the middle of the plot. And then when the winds, especially in the Central Pacific, are enhanced out of the east, so stronger than normal trade winds, that tends to promote La Nina and inhibit El Nino because basically, um, it tends to promote upwelling and churning up of the ocean surface, and also tends to um, attenuate any warming that's trying to um, develop from the west towards the east. And so we see a lot of blues indicating stronger than normal trade winds uh, for about the next 15 days. And if you actually look at the forecast for the next 46 days, um, certainly these models aren't perfect once you go out farther, but you see a whole lot of blue near the international dateline, and this typically is a harbinger of a continuation of La Nina conditions. So I've, I'm, I'm fairly confident we're going to likely stay with La Nina um, for the next couple of months, barring some sort of unforeseen um, westerly wind event that would cause significant warming. So now shifting gears and talking about the Atlantic, uh, we currently do have warmer than normal waters across the Eastern and Central Tropical Atlantic, um, near average in the Caribbean. But again, you see all that warmth off the Iberian Peninsula, off of France, off of England. And this plot shows the correlations between sea surface temperatures and accumulated cyclone energy during the month of June. Um, and so here, what we're showing is when you have Basically, here's the regions that you want warm waters if you're looking for an above normal season. So the darker colors indicate regions that correlate strongly positively with overall basin-wide activity. And so we see lots of dark colors, so indicating the highest correlations off of Spain, or I'm sorry, off of Portugal, off of France, even up to England. And so if we just briefly toggle through, you can see it's not a perfect match, but in general, the areas where the waters are warm right now historically are the areas that you are looking to have warm water if you're looking for an above normal Atlantic hurricane season. So not a perfect setup, but all in all, these conditions do seem fairly likely like we are going to have an above normal Atlantic hurricane season this year. Um, and so there's a variety of different models that will forecast what's gonna happen over the next several months. And so here's a figure showing the forecast from the ECMWF or the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts. And this is a forecast for sea surface temperatures for August through October, again, the peak of the season. And you can see a lot of blues in the Eastern and Central Tropical Pacific, indicating that the model is fairly aggressive at calling for La Nina conditions to persist. Also in general, forecasting a warmer than normal tropical and North Atlantic. And again, when those waters are warmer than normal, that tends to create a more favorable um, environment for hurricanes to develop and to intensify. And so in addition to forecasting um, the large-scale environment, the European Center model, the, the um, UK Met Office model, which I'll show shortly, also actually spin up tropical cyclones. And so you can also, in addition to kind of looking at the large-scale environment, you can also just count the number of storms that the model spins up and calculate um, how much activity occurred in those years based on the model. And so the European Center model, um, here focusing on the Atlantic, is calling for a well above normal Atlantic hurricane season, uh, 19 storms, and this is from July through December. So um, this forecast was initialized on the 1st of June. So for July through December, they're forecasting 19 storms. Um, so a very, very busy hurricane season. Likewise, a total of 10 point, uh, on average, about 11 hurricanes. Um, so this model has um, 51, 51 different members, which is how you end up with a forecast of 10.7. Um, basically, you count up all the, the hurricanes spun up in each of the different model references, and then you divide by 51. But certainly a very aggressive forecast from the European Center. 
Likewise, the UK Met Office model is also forecasting, you know, quite a busy season, an uh, ACE of 176, which is very similar to our ACE forecast of 180. Um, likewise, nine hurricanes, again, we're forecasting 10. Nine hurricanes is there, um, most likely forecast. So now if we shift gears and look at the NOAA forecast, they're also calling for an above normal season with a relatively high probability. Their numbers are a little bit lower than what we are forecasting or what say the UK Met and ECMWF are forecasting, but they're also still calling for a well above average hurricane season this year. And so both um, our group will update in July and in early August, NOAA will also issue an update in early August. Um, so now I kind of want to dive in and talk a little bit about some of the nuts and bolts behind our seasonal forecast. You know, we look at the large scale environment, we do have kind of some numerical guidance tools that help us with our seasonal forecast. And one of these is a statistical model. And so this is basically kind of similar to what Dr. Gray would have used way back in the day, where you basically look for regions that worked well at forecasting historical hurricane seasons. And since this forecast is in June, early June, we use conditions in April and May. So we have two basically predictors one and two are effectively analyzing the state of the Atlantic and predictors three and four are analyzing the state of the Pacific. And these four predictors in combination work pretty well forecasting hurricane activity. Now you're never gonna get perfect seasonal forecasts, but these four predictors in combination can get you a little more than half of the variability. And this is going back to 1982. The reason we only go back to 82 is because that's when we have high resolution sea surface temperature data. So, but over 40 years, the model shows reasonably good levels of skill. Again, not perfect, but overall it does do a reasonably good job. And the output from these four parameters this year this for value is very, very close to what we ended up forecasting. You can see accumulated cyclone energy of 180, which is exactly what we forecast. So very close to what's in line with our statistical model. So now we also use a hybrid model approach. And the reason that we use that is because um, we're trying to kind of get an idea of what the large scale environment might look like in the future. And so here what we're doing is we're saying, you know, I'd love to know what July is going to look like, but obviously June 1st, I don't know what July will look like. But we can use climate models to forecast July, and the models do a reasonably good job. And it's not to say that the model is going to tell you, you know, June 8th, the winds are going to be a little bit stronger, you know, months in advance. But what the model can say is overall, you know, the winds in the Caribbean are likely to be stronger or weaker than normal um, winds over Africa. They can do that with reasonable levels of skill. And the reason that we know this is because these climate models are also developed off of historical data because you want to make sure you know that they actually work well at forecasting um, in the past because the physics of the atmosphere and ocean really don't change. So if the model works well at forecasting, you know, say 40 years of historical data, it should work well at continuing to forecast um, weather in the future. So we have these basically kind of the hindcast skill or how good the model was at forecasting July. And assuming those forecasts are correct, we can then get reasonable levels of skill. And so the ECNWF hindcast goes back to 81. And so we can see, you know, slightly less than what we get from a statistical model, but another kind of independent tool that we can use to help give us confidence in these seasonal forecasts. So we have this one off of the European Center. We also have two additional models off of the Japan Meteorological Agency, as well as the UK Met Office. And so that model is also calling for a very, very healthy hurricane season in 2022. Now we also use analogs. So analogs involve going into the past and looking for the years in the past that had conditions most similar to what we currently see and what we expect to see for the peak of the Atlantic hurricane season. And so it's important to note that when we select years as analogs, 
we're basically saying the overall environment looks similar to those years. We're not saying that the storms are going to form in the same place or the storm, we're gonna see the exact same storm. So, you know, 2018 analog, doesn't mean we're going to see, you know, another um, Dolly, Gustav and Ike or 2021's on analog, doesn't mean we're gonna see necessarily another Hurricane Ida. It's just overall conditions look similar to what we saw in the average of those six years. And so when we select our analogs, we were looking for years that generally had either cool neutral ENSO or more likely La Nina conditions, as well as an Atlantic that was a little bit warmer than normal. We're not necessarily expecting a super hot Atlantic, but a little bit warmer than normal. And you can see the average of these six years, what the sea surface temperature anomalies or differences from average look like. You can see colder than normal waters in the eastern and central tropical Pacific Ocean and warmer than normal waters across the Caribbean into the Atlantic, but not super hot. Um, so again, this is kind of where our current analogs in June, these analogs may change a bit in July, just depending on what happens over the next several weeks. We also provide probabilities of exceedance, which give you an idea of kind of the uncertainty associated with these forecasts. And the way that we do this is we can calculate the historical probabilities of exceedance based on historical data. And then what we do is we try to fit that effectively to a statistical distribution, and then basically include the um, uncertainties that we have in our historical model. And so for example, here we can give you a 70% confidence interval. And that is very similar to what you're going to see from a forecast say issued by NOAA. Um, so in this case, um, we're forecasting a total of 10 hurricanes, but with the uncertainties, we're forecasting eight to 12, which again is similar to what NOAA showed where they forecasting six to 10 hurricanes. So again, plus or minus two is kind of the error, kind of the historical error of these seasonal forecasts. Some years we get the numbers on the head, other years there's gonna be a larger error, but on average, about two thirds of the time, we're gonna be plus or minus two hurricanes. We also do probabilities of landfall. And the reason that we do these is because you can't say months in advance when or where storms are going to strike, but we can calculate the historical probabilities of landfall based on historical data. And then we can simply adjust them up or down based on the forecast. So in general, above normal seasons have more landfall and hurricanes than below normal seasons. Doesn't work out every year. There's certainly great examples of very quiet seasons like 1983 that had only four storms that had Hurricane Alicia, or 1992 where Dr. Gray and CSU had a great forecast of only one major hurricane. Uh, that was the A storm all the way in late August, but it was Andrew and obviously was devastating for South Florida when it came ashore as a category five. But in general, more active seasons have more landfalling hurricanes just simply because there's more storms out in the Atlantic to threaten. Um, so you can see the probabilities this year are elevated because we are forecasting an above normal hurricane season. We also do probabilities down to the county level. And the way that we do this is we basically take, basically draw a 50 mile radius around each county or parish if you live in Louisiana and count the storms that tracked in that radius. And the reason that we do that is because that helps include storms that may not have actually tracked directly over your county, but still brought significant impacts. Obviously, if a hurricane makes landfall one county over from you, you can still experience very significant impacts. Um, so in this case, we're looking at Plymouth County, which I selected because this is where I grew up. Um, we have a total of 10 hurricanes that track within 50 miles of Plymouth County from 1880 to 2020. And then we can calculate probabilities based off, based off of that and then adjust them based on our latest forecast. So we do this for every county from Texas to Maine. We also do a similar analysis for every state. And so here you can see the probabilities of hurricanes and major hurricanes within 50 miles. So in the case of Texas, 
The historical probability of a hurricane within 50 miles of Texas is 36%. This year it's elevated at 59% because we are forecasting, again, an above normal overall Atlantic hurricane season. So we have this for every state along the coastline of the US. We do this for every hurricane prone province in Canada, as well as every state along the Atlantic coast of Mexico. In addition to every um, country um, in Central, or all the countries in Central America and the Caribbean as well. Um, and so our forecasts aren't stagnant. We did our first one on 7th of April. We updated on the 2nd of June. Uh, we'll put out another update on the 7th of July and a final update on the 4th of August. And even though the July and August forecasts are well into the hurricane season from a date perspective, again, over 90% of your major hurricane activity occurs after the 1st of August. So it gives us um, kind of one last chance to fine tune the numbers and one last shot at them all again if something really, really has changed from what we anticipated earlier during the season. And if you can't get enough of seasonal hurricane predictions, I invite you to check out seasonalhurricanepredictions.org. We have a whole pile of different groups issuing seasonal forecasts. These groups range from private sector weather companies to government agencies to universities. Uh, currently, we do have more universities in landlocked states and states that actually border an ocean. Um, but we um, try to basically give you an idea of the forecast from these different groups. Um, so here's a, kind of the visualization of the website. Uh, so here, the red dot on the bottom left is the observed value to date. So far, no hurricanes. The orange dot denotes the um, average of all of the seasonal forecasts. And so we have the average of the March-April forecast, as well as the average of the May-June forecast. We've had 27 groups submit seasonal forecasts so far. If you count these, you'd say, hey, there's not quite 27. And that's because not every group forecasts each parameter. So some groups only forecast the number of storms, not the number of hurricanes. Fewer groups forecast major hurricanes or accumulated cyclone energy. But these groups are color-coded. Purples indicate private sector weather companies. Um, blues are universities and reds are government agencies. And you can see there's not a ton of spread of these different forecasts. Some of that though has to do with the fact that, um, you know, we're looking at fairly similar content. All of us are looking at, you know, the state of ENSO, what's going on in the Atlantic. So there's not, there's not a ton of spread. And you do tend to see more spread if we're looking more at um, completely ENSO neutral conditions and you tend to get a little more spread in these forecasts. But of the 27 forecasts right now, uh, their average is about 19 storms, eight hurricanes, four major hurricanes, and an ace of 165. So right now, CSU is a little bit higher than the average of all of these different forecasts. And here, the number of um, groups that have issued forecasts for the different parameters is listed in parentheses. So you can see more groups forecast the number of storms and the number of hurricanes, and you can see only about half of the groups forecasting accumulated cyclone energy. But we'll try to get more groups doing that quantity here in the future, since I think it's um. Tentative generally has fairly high predictability and I think it is also of relevance um, as well. So with that, I will wrap up. Um, here's how you can get in touch with me and I will try to answer any questions. So thank you again. Fascinating as always, Phil. And we're gonna be back with questions after another word from our sponsors. Back to you, Alex. We make USAA insurance for renters who make the most of their space and money. That's why we make it easy to cover the stuff you love for as little as 33 cents a day. USAA, what you're made of, we're made for. Blackmagic Design's ATEM Mini line of live production switchers makes it easy to create professional broadcast quality programs and multi-camera productions and stream them live to YouTube, Facebook, and more, or present live via Zoom and Skype. 
Simply connect the A10 Mini and switch live up to eight high-quality video camera inputs for dramatically better quality images. All A10 Mini models have USB that works like a webcam for use with any streaming software, while the A10 Mini Pro and the A10 Mini Extreme models add direct live streaming and recording to USB discs. A10 Mini models start at $295. For more information, visit blackmagicdesign.com. Okay, welcome back, everybody. And uh, uh, I hope you've digested all that uh, Phil had to offer there. Uh, uh, I, I, I have an interesting uh, thing about uh, uh, the triple La Nina. How often do we see those? Yeah, so depending on which month of the year you're looking at, it's been, this is about the third time we've seen that since 1950. So it's unusual, but it does occur. Hmm. And one thing I didn't talk about today is that, you know, the, if you look longer term, we've actually been in a more La Nina-like environment, even since about at least the last 30 years, if not even longer, maybe even 50 years. Not to say we haven't seen El Ninos and seen some very impactful ones, but longer term, we've been trending more towards La Nina. Um, and that has pretty significant impacts. Obviously that tends to increase overall levels of Atlantic hurricane activity, uh, but it tends to actually decrease storm activity in the Pacific Ocean. And since the Pacific Ocean is a larger ocean, a lot of warm, um, a lot of high ocean heat content, just basically a, a breeding ground for hurricanes and typhoons once you cross the international dateline, overall storm activity globally actually go, has been going down pretty significantly since 1990, the number of global hurricanes. So, you know, this, this more trend towards a more La Nina-like environment um, while increasing the Atlantic and making life busy for all of us, um, has other implications as well in terms of how global storms, um, if this continues, how global storms future, in the future may behave globally. Um, it also obviously has big impacts for other weather and climate patterns as well, as you probably heard with the uh, persistent drought in the Southwest US, typically La Nina um, does kind of favor those drought-like conditions. So if this were to continue, that's not a great, um, great news for the Southwest US drought. No, uh, uh, a couple of things come to mind on that. What you actually walked right into the next question I had is: Is there any correlation between the trends of more uh, uh, La Nina or more El Nino with the AMO? Yeah. So typically, when you have a um, positive. AMO or Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation when the Atlantic is warmer, you tend to actually get more La Ninas overall, but it's, it's a fairly messy signal. And some of that is this multi-decadal variability in the Atlantic, if it's, it's only have like two to maybe three realizations of it. So it's hard to make a ton of super, um, super definitive comments on it. But overall, it does seem like in general, when the Atlantic is warm, the Pacific tends to be a little bit cooler. You tend to get more kind of overturning in the Atlantic, and that tends to be a little more um, upwelling going on in the Pacific Ocean in response. Um, but it's, it's a fairly messy signal. Interesting. The, the other point I had, and I don't know if you get into that part or not on it, but I read, also uh, recall uh, reading that one of the factors uh, that we were looking for if, with uh, warming climate would be a trend towards more El Nino. And this runs exactly opposite that trend. Have you had any chance to address that? Yeah, yeah. so we actually, um, this tropical cyclones and climate change meeting that I attended last week, there was a very, very heated discussion on this topic because um, it is 
pretty much what we were observing in reality is the exact, is pretty much the opposite of what most of the climate models are projecting. And so there's a lot of question is, is this just kind of a temporary thing or is there something inherently quote unquote wrong in the climate models? And I think they're, they're without probably going into, we could discuss this for hours, but I think if you start looking at the way these climate models resolve the tropical Pacific, they tend to have too cold of an Eastern tropical Pacific and too warm just to the North and South. And so you end up basically with models that don't have as strong of trade winds as you actually have in reality. So I think they sometimes kind of don't have the proper feedbacks in them. And that can really kind of mess up kind of the overall circulation. So there are, there have been some papers published actually arguing that um, we may actually be at least in the end, at some point we should reach an equilibrium state, but up until that point, we could actually potentially be looking at a more La Nina-like um, environment. And again, that has very significant impacts for both for hurricanes in the Atlantic, hurricanes and typhoons globally, as well as, you know, other weather and climate patterns around the world. Yeah, it would really, that would really tie in with the expectation of a prolonged drought in the southwestern. Correct. It also has pretty important implications for global temperature too, because El Nino overall tends to lead to a warmer global climate. Um, so if you have a more La Nina-like environment, that may actually end up masking some of that warming, at least temporarily. So that's that's some other stuff that certainly we need to try to get a better handle on as we're trying to project temperature changes, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now. So I, I need to stop calling La Nina El Nino's evil sister. She's good and bad in her. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, I'm going to uh, switch over to Tim here. I, I, he said he had some questions coming in, so let's hear. A number of questions coming in online. Let me start with this, though. You know, Phil, of course, Dr. Gray pioneered this whole idea of a seasonal forecast. She said in 1984, I think I interviewed him in 1985 about that at the insistence of uh, Neil Frank. Uh, but since then, all these other agencies have started doing this. Are the other agencies as transparent about their forecast methods as you are? And with that, have you picked up anything from them that aids you in your forecast? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, most, I can't answer for every single group, but I'd say most of them are, are, are pretty transparent with what they're using. I mean, we go into a ton of detail describing every single model. Here's, here's where all the data is. Here's where all each predictor value is. But if you go to like, you know, say like NOAA's seasonal forecast, you can certainly see, you know, what they're, basically they, they have a pretty extensive documentation of here's what we're looking at. Here's why, you know, here's where all the different outputs are. Um, so I would say most groups are, are fairly transparent. I mean, I think one of the things that, um, that I've really started getting into, and I mentioned some in my talk, is starting to adopt some of these climate model forecasts. And so that's something I think I have learned. And I know Dr. Gray was very skeptical about this, and rightly so, given how climate models used to be. But now, you know, there is a fair amount of information in those. And so I could say, like, NOAA, for example, uses those extensively in their forecasts. And so um, and if you look at, like, the UK Met Office and ECMWF, their seasonal hurricane forecast is completely from a numerical model. And so not saying that's necessarily that they're always going to be right. They certainly had some pretty big busts as well, like we have. Um, but it is valuable in that it gives us kind of an additional tool in addition to just using the past. And so one of the things I think that is a big improvement that we had, even, like, when I started was, you know, if they were putting out a forecast June 1st, it used to be, I know what April and May look like, but I have no clue what, what June's going to look like. Whereas now, climate models can forecast the next two to three weeks in bulk average sense reasonably well. And so that gives me an idea, like on June 1st, I, have, I don't know what June's going to look like, but I have some ideas. 
and that's really valuable. So you are kind of getting a brief glimpse into the, you're getting a glimpse into the future that you just wouldn't have had 10, 20 years ago. And you know, as as those not saying they're going to become groundbreaking and we're going to see you know a perfect forecast three months in the future, but as those continue to get better, that will certainly help with our seasonal forecast too, because it basically just gives us improved lead time. Now with like say for example when we put out the August forecast. I can start to look and see, okay, what are conditions going to look like even into late August when you're now talking the peak of the season when storms really start firing. So now we have kind of, it gives you an additional information than just knowing, okay, here's what we have up through, say, you know, August 1st for the August forecast, something like that. Casper's asking when the, when the pattern shifts from La Nina to El Nino, how long does it take the atmosphere to respond? You know? yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a good question. And so, you know, sometimes so El Nino and La Nina are really big drivers, but they're not the only things going on. You have other, um, if you want to talk about climate indices, there's alphabet soup of climate indices on seasonal timescales as well as sub-seasonal timescales. So when you say have all El Nino, you start transitioning to El Nino, sometimes the atmosphere responds very quickly, but there can be other years where the, it just takes a little while longer to respond. And that's because there's a lot of other forcings in the climate system besides El Nino and La Nina. That's a big forcing and over time a tend to dominate, but there is sub-seasonal variability, um, like you may have heard of this Madden-Julian oscillation, which is basically variability on a 30 to 70 day timescale, which can effectively in some ways kind of imprint a, a mini La Nina, El Nino signal on things. So if you know the atmosphere is, say for example, right now we have a La Nina, but there's there's been a couple of periods where the atmosphere responded in a more El Nino-like way because the shorter term climate variability was um, basically forcing thunderstorms where you normally have, where they're normally suppressed in a La Nina. Um, and so a good example of this is 2004. We were transitioning to an El Nino in 2004, but obviously 2004 was an extremely busy hurricane season. However, late September, basically the atmosphere went from kind of neutral like to El Nino like really, really quickly. And early October came along and the season completely shut down. Um, and that was due to the onset. Basically the atmosphere is then was like, oh wow, there's an El Nino. I better get better respond like it is like it is. So um so that's kind of a long answer to that question, but there it, usually it will respond relatively quickly, but it can take a while just if there's other kind of climate modes that are kind of impinging on things. So there's a whole lot of different signals kind of competing at, at, at all the time and it's kind of which one will end up winning out. And usually over time, El Nino or La Nina will win out, but there are other things that can certainly kind of mess up that signal on shorter timescales. Hurricane Man says, I know it's hard to say at this point, but <laughs> any idea what the steering patterns are looking like as we get into the peak of the season, August, September, and October? Yeah, and unfortunately, the like the mid-latitude steering flow, that doesn't have much predictability. Uh, I've looked at that a little bit and even a month out, it's, it's pretty hard. So, I mean, you know, right now, I mean, there's what I use. So the European Center um, twice a week does a forecast actually out to 46 days, and it'll kind of forecast regions where it thinks maybe something will happen. But again, that's way, way out in the future, and there's not a ton of scale that far out. So that's kind of stuff I start to look at once we start getting more into July. Um, but the models will do a reasonably good job. Like, for example, even in early to mid-May, you got you just did start to see a signal, potentially something developing in the Southwest Caribbean, and then maybe drifting towards the Northeast, which actually did turn out to be Alex. And even this system that, uh, that Bill mentioned at the start that at least it now doesn't necessarily look like it's going to develop, but the models were kind of hinting at something in that region um, a couple of weeks ago. So that's kind of what I tend to look at if I'm looking out, you know, beyond, you know, 10 to 15 days is trying to get some ideas of that. But the, the mid-latitude steering flow is just something that's really hard to know months in advance. 
couple more questions from online, then I'll toss it back to you, Bill, for more. Um, Kylie wants to know, is there any particular reason the government agencies seem to run higher on their predicted numbers than the others? Um, I think some of it maybe is due to the time. Um, the government agencies, a lot of those forecasts are input to NOAA's seasonal forecasts. A lot of those are came out around June 1st. Um, so I think that maybe some of it is that, in general, the forecasts have trended a little bit higher as we've moved on from April to now. For example, our forecast in April was for nine hurricanes, and in June we bumped it up to 10. Um, and then otherwise, it's just some of those um, some of those numerical, a lot of the numerical guidance tools, which are some of the government tools, um, did generally came in very robust for this season. Great, great bunch of questions coming in online today. We appreciate all the viewers. And James uh, asked early on, will the landfall probability project be continued? Obviously, it's continuing this year, but is the plan for it to keep going forward? Yeah, yeah, that's the plan. Um, we do have some ideas right now. As I mentioned, we just basically bulk increase or decrease the probabilities based on overall basin-wide activity. We're, we're going to try to play around a little bit with maybe doing some broad adjustments based on ENSO phase and maybe a couple other things. But We'll, 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 we'll see where that goes. But yeah, certainly the landfall probabilities. Um, we, intend, we intend to continue them. Hopefully put in some, uh, some mapping functionality for that as well coming up. Terrific. Let me go back to Bill. Bill, jump back in. Great. Hey, fantastic discussion. I, I love all this stuff. The, <laughs> yeah, uh, a number of years ago, there was a, it seemed to me, uh, one of the predictors we looked at was uh, uh, rainfall in the Sahel to the equatorial Africa region. And I've actually seen some people uh, who I don't know, so I don't have any assessment of credibility that are talking about an active uh, rainy se season in Africa and how that's going to contribute to uh, stronger tropical waves and whatnot. But it's not; a, it doesn't look like it's one of your forecast parameters anymore. Can you explain the uh, apparent di uh, differences there? Yeah, and so what we look at is we actually, so in our statistical dynamical model, one of the, the factors that we look at is effectively um, upper level winds over Africa. And that tends to be when those are anomalously out of the east, it tends to be associated with a very healthy tropical easterly jet, which is typically associated with a very vigorous uh, West African monsoon. And most of the models are forecasting a very vigorous West African monsoon. If you look at the um, ECMWF long range forecast, I'm actually stalling so I can pull it up and then I can share my screen and show everyone. Um, you can actually see that it is a it is forecasting a very vigorous uh, West African monsoon. Um, and so, as you mentioned, Dr. Gray, um, back in the day, that was one of our biggest uh, predictors, especially once we got into June and July, was the um, the strength of the. I'm just trying to find it here. Okay, let's see. Is this um, yeah, I can't find it real quick, but basically it is forecasting a very vigorous West African monsoon, and that tends to be associated with an above normal season, basically. Um, the number of waves coming off Africa, well, so these tropical waves, which are the building blocks of hurricanes, don't necessarily, the number doesn't necessarily change that much, but some years the waves are much more vigorous than others, and that's not the only thing you need, but in general, all else being equal, if the waves are more vigorous coming off Africa, they tend to be more likely to develop. Um, and we will see that on occasion. You'll see storms. Yeah. Last, For example, last year, like Larry, especially, like it came off Africa and hit the ground running, and it was basically ready to rock the second it came off. Um, and so you will get some of those storms. Like, for example, a, a really good example is Irma in 2017, which basically came off Africa, and I think within about a day, it had spun up, and then it was, you know, it, it was off to the races for the next 10 days. 
Yeah. So the you basically, yeah, the 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 wind forecast, the upper level wind forecast, works as a proxy for correct. Yeah, and some of that's just because the precipitation data itself is more questionable, like in terms of how robust the, the actual values are. Um, but the upper level winds in these um, historical reanalysis products usually just are, are good. But yeah, you're right. We're basically using that as a proxy for the uh, the vigor and strength of the West African monsoon, which is a which is very important. I mean, yes. Um, as you as you said, the models are in general very bullish for um, a very healthy monsoon. Cool. Uh, well, I, I see your graph uh, showing the the, the verifications uh, through the years. It, it, it visually appears to me that there's a, a significant uh, trend towards more skill in the in the last uh, five to ten years. Is is that a correct uh, assumption? Yeah, some of the models had issues, especially in 2004. Um, 2004 was the, generally the models, uh, and our seasonal forecast wasn't great that year either um, in real time. And I think a lot of that was due to the um, El Nino that was coming on the models in general forecasting more La Nino, or a more El Nino-like environment than we actually got during August and September. Um, but yeah, the last few years, the models in general have been doing have been doing better, both the statistical models as well as the statistical dynamical models. They've been getting a better, seem to be getting a better handle on on how things are how things are playing out. And so these statistical dynamical models, so the ones that use like either the UK Met Office or the Japan Meteorological Agency or the European Center, those dynamical models will get upgraded fairly often. Um, and just because they get upgraded and actually do better job forecasting global, doesn't it guarantee they're actually do a better job forecasting the specific regions that we're forecasting for. Mm -hmm. um, so every time those models get upgraded, it's not always at the skill improves. Sometimes it does, sometimes it actually will go down a little bit. Just yeah. depends because again, these models are built to forecast global weather. They're not necessarily built to forecast, you know, these specific regions that we're looking at um, for the uh, hurricane season. Yeah, that's interesting. It's the same, that's the same thing I noticed in our, uh track forecast verification graphs that, that if you you do the smooth trend all the way through the period of record you're looking at but if you actually break it down you can you can see almost like a step function and you can go back and find a major improvement to modeling that correlates with that yeah definitely definitely yeah it, it's not always um it's not always a guarantee that you're going to have um that, that each each individual model improvement is going to necessarily improve it, but over time you will definitely see these bigger improvements. And my one last question is, uh, uh, I assume you're still doing the the uh, two-week forecast starting with the peak of the season in, in August, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So we'll be starting that with our August outlook. Um, that, the, the day of that, we'll do our first two-week forecast and then we'll update that every two weeks. And the reason we do that is because you can have a busy season has a quieter period, for example, 2020, which seemed crazy because it was. We actually late September that year had a very, very quiet period of about 10 days. Um, basically, the atmosphere got really quiet. And we had nothing. And then October came around and we had five major hurricanes in October and November. Um, so trying to kind of pinpoint when, when you're going to have those above or below normal two-week periods. And those forecasts do take a lot of work. I definitely agonize over them because it's tricky because you have to use a combination of what's out there now or what's out there at the time of the forecast, as well as kind of what the models are saying might spin up. And then you're also looking at kind of what the overall atmospheric environment's looking at the next two weeks, like the next two weeks to find other areas that maybe the models haven't quite picked up on yet. It, it, that, I assume that's where you uh, 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 do some heavy lifting with the MGO. 
Correct. Yes, yes. That's when we use the uh, one of the big predictors that we use, as you mentioned, is this Madden Julian oscillation because um, it alters kind of where thunderstorms tend to be enhanced, but also really impacts what the vertical wind shear looks like. So doesn't work. Every, some years it's fairly weak, but if you have a robust one, that can really either bring up your storms or knock down your storms uh, for a short, shorter time periods. Yeah, I'm slowly learning how to use that. It, it was invented after my education. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I believe it was, I believe Dr. Grace to tell the story the Magdalene oscillation was in, was basically discovered by Roland Madden. And basically the way he discovered it, I believe, was spreading out effectively um, maps on his floor one evening and happened to see this, this propagation with time. Um, so Dr. Gray, so that was the way, that was the way good, good, good weather and climate research got done, was just spreading weather maps out on your floor and looking at them. That's not like fun. Well, Tim, do you have any more questions? Uh, just one that's coming online, and this is from Casper. Um, and he wants to know if there are any predicted features with the Indian Ocean Dipole for the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the relationship is, so the Indian Ocean Dipole is effectively a gradient in temperature between the Western Tropical Indian Ocean and the Eastern Tropical Indian Ocean. And so when the, when the dipole is positive, that means that the Western Indian Ocean is warm relative to the Eastern Indian Ocean. But the signal with that is fairly messy. Um, in general, a positive Indian Ocean dipole, so warm in the West Indian Ocean and cold in the East, tends to be more El Nino-like because typically in an El Nino, the Eastern Pacific is cold, the West, or sorry, the Eastern Pacific is warm, the Western Pacific is cold, and that tends to kind of bleed into the Eastern Indian Ocean. But the signal is fairly weak. Um, so I would say overall right now, it looks more likely that we're going to have a negative Indian Ocean dipole, which potentially could help also favor an above normal season. But if you start actually correlating the Indian Ocean dipole with hurricanes, it, it's very low. Um, and I think it's just, there's a lot of other things I think that are bigger drivers than what goes on in the Indian Ocean. Unstumpable, I think is the word. I, we can't stump you with anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you definitely can. But uh, yeah, but the Indian Ocean Dipole uh, is an interesting feature. I think that's something I'd like to actually look at more from a theory, more from um, actually using a model so we can basically turn off all the other forcing and look at what the Indian Ocean Dipole would do just in and of itself because it's, it's pretty closely tied to ENSO and that makes it really hard to kind of, we only have so many realizations of it. And so if you take out all the years where you had an Indian Ocean Dipole and no end, so you end up with a very small sample size. So that's something I think where I'm a climate model might actually be able to be nice to use because then you can kind of tune out all the other forcing and see what it would do if that's the only forcing you had and everything else was zero effectively, it was neutral. I feel like we have one more break, do we not? All right, it's time for Alex to give us our one more break and then we'll come back with a wrap up and uh, a hint on what we're going to talk about next week. We make USAA insurance for renters who make the most of their space and money. That's why we make it easy to cover the stuff you love for as little as 33 cents a day. USAA, what you're made of, we're made for. Los amantes de la playa lo saben. Los pescadores, los niños pequeños y los grandes lo saben. Los fanáticos del sol, los constructores de castillos de arena también lo saben. Los espíritus libres, los buscadores de aventuras y todos los que han estado aquí lo saben. La Isla del Padre es muy divertida, tan perfecta y sobre todo tan padre. Planea tus vacaciones en sopadre.com. 
Blackmagic Design's ATEM Streaming Bridge is a video converter that lets users receive an H.264 stream from any ATEM Mini Pro or ATEM Mini Extreme switcher and convert it back to SDI and HDMI video. This means users can send video to remote locations around their local Ethernet network or via the Internet globally. ATEM Streaming Bridge is the perfect way to use ATEM Mini Pro or ATEM Mini Extreme as a remote broadcast studio. ATEM Streaming Bridge is available for $245 from Blackmagic Design resellers worldwide. For more information, visit blackmagicdesign.com. Okay, welcome back. Well, Phil has found that great slide about the African rainfall. So, Phil, pop that up there real quick and we'll... Uh see the evidence. Yeah, so this is the um, European Center forecast for rain the next um, 45 days. And so here, kind of intuitively, as you would expect, browns indicate drier than normal. Um, blues and greens indicate wetter than normal. And you can see West Africa is very, very green and blue, indicating indicative of a very vigorous um, monsoon, at least as forecast by the European Center, um, out for 45 days, so through towards the end of July. And one of the important things is that, well, July is still prior to the peak of the season. Kind of what happens in July tends to persist through August, September, and October. So if July is very moist, if you get a lot of if the monsoon is strong in July, it tends to be vigorous for the rest of the season. Also, too, if the winds, if you have less shear in July, that tends to persist for the rest of the season, which is one of the reasons why July is such an important month and we get a lot of skill with July in our seasonal forecast, with July included in our seasonal forecast. Fascinating. Well, it's been a pleasure having you, Phil. I'm going to toss it back over to Tim, and we'll wrap it up with a tease on what we get for next week. Terrific program. Thank you, gentlemen, Bill. Thanks, as always. And Dr. Phil, always good to have you on, sharing more science knowledge in an hour than most of us can share in a lifetime. So we appreciate it. Great stuff. Great stuff. Um, next week, we've got uh, George Siegel. Uh, from the documentary Last House Standing. That'll be next Wednesday at 10 a.m. here on NTWC Live. Uh, you can look for the link on our Facebook page or uh, we'll show you where you can see that and be ready with your questions. And thanks to everybody who watched today and offered some great questions for Dr. Phil as well. And again, unstumpable, I think. We, has he answered everything we can come up with? So great job today, Phil. We'll, tr we'll try again next time. So, so we'll see you next week, uh, Wednesday, 10 a.m. George Siegel, Last House Standing. In the meantime, thanks to our sponsors, USAA, the South Padreana Convention and Visitors Bureau, Walmart, Visit Brownsville, Blackmagic Design, the Port of Brownsville, and the Weather Company, all part of making these events a possibility. Until next week, take care. Have a great weekend, y'all.